Um, and since we're talking about all the different vendors, uh, let's go back to what you were talking about. Uh, what we're gonna, what I was going to ask you about earlier in terms of uh, the sort of the major differences between Lambda Azure Functions and Google Cloud Functions, and uh, where do you see maybe where Azure is doing better, and maybe where a Lambda is doing better, for example? Yeah. So yeah, I think so. I've I've used most. Most of the major cloud providers, I've used Google Cloud Functions, I've used Azure Functions, um, and obviously Lambda as well, all within, you know, in paid gigs and production. So my thoughts on a lot of them, it really comes down to the ecosystem with, within which it exists. You know, um, the first ever functions provider was um, INO, the IN Functions. Um, Auth0 had a functions platform called WebTask. All of this kind of existed just before Lambda existed, and they don't really exist anymore. Um because the adoption is often it's driven by the ecosystem. You know, folks who are using AWS adopted Lambda first. Folks didn't go to AWS because of Lambda, definitely not in 2015. And for me, the quality of the different functions platforms um, is as much about the quality of the overall platform. So the amount of event sources. So Google, for example, is not super event-driven. Um, they don't have anywhere near as many event sources as AWS or Azure, and that's that's a major failing. Like, they've got... Google Cloud Run, which is great, and Google Cloud Functions, which is okay. But Cloud Run is really all about synchronous workloads. You know, so if you want the asynchronous event-driven stuff, um, Cloud Run's not a great platform because it's not an easy integration. You have to use Google Cloud PubSub um, to essentially make stuff event-driven. So you have your event, gets popped to PubSub, PubSub then invokes um, Cloud Run by sending essentially the the call from PubSub to Cloud Run as a synchronous call. Um, you know, so Cloud Run is not async natively itself. It requires PubSub to do that. And there's a very limited number of um, data sources. So that's a problem with that. Cloud Functions itself, Google Cloud Functions, hasn't had the development of the other platforms. So Azure Functions and Lambda both have really good cadence of releases and features. Cloud Functions hasn't quite had that. Um, you know, there's a bunch of features that people were expected from day one. Um, so you can't really do a custom domain name with Cloud Functions, um, which is a major failing if you want to use it for anything publicly. Um, you know, and that's an issue. You know, you have to use Cloud Run. Uh, um, so Cloud Functions is, unless you're using Cloud Functions via Firebase, and it's Firebase Functions. Um, and then Azure Functions are the biggest problem I have with Azure Functions is that it's not really an Azure Functions problem. It's an Azure problem um, in that authentication, there's no global IAM equivalent within um, Azure Functions. Azure's got Azure Active Directory, which you'd think would be supported by every service. But if you go under the hood, a lot of the serverless services don't support it. So if you're using Cosmos DB, um, it's a really high-performant, NoSQL scalable database. Um, which now has um, auto-scaling, um, which is great. Um, but Cosmos DB doesn't support Azure Active Directory. So you need to make, so you can't create a service user in Azure Active Directory, um, which you can assign to a function. And then um, that function can't make a call directly to Cosmos DB. It has to make a call to Key Vault, which is the um, the key management system, the Azure key management system, and that supports Active Directory. So you put your Cosmos DB key in Key Vault. You use your Active Directory token that your function has access to um, to call Key Vault, and then you can make a call to Cosmos. And you do that once during initialization, um, 
but it's a step you just don't have to do on Lambda, for example. Um, and that's the biggest failing I find with Azure is, is it's just you'd expect everything to be tightly integrated, but you know, there's a bunch of these services. Um, Cosmos DB is the one, Event Grid is the other one, um, that don't support Active Directory natively. I do expect that to change because they are increasing the amount of services that use Azure, uh, Active Directory. So, for example, um, Azure Blob Storage didn't support it, and now it does. Um, but that's that's kind of what it's yeah. So that's kind of I mean Lambda for me is is it's the leading platform, and it's not just about the performance of what you can do with Lambda and the extensibility of Lambda. Um, if AWS if it didn't have all the event sources and it wasn't so integrated into AWS, it wouldn't be anywhere near as useful. Um, you know, I'd say in terms of the major functions providers, uh, Lambda is clear number one. Uh, Azure is definitely number two. Um, you know, talking about folks running within clouds, you know, I'd, I'd separate out the the edge function providers as a separate category. Um, but yeah, definitely Lambda one, Azure functions two, um, Google Cloud functions definitely needs a lot more development. Um, it needs to like it seems to be like the the forgotten child um, at Google. They seem to focus more on Cloud Run. Um, cloud Run's really good for very specific types of workloads, um, and then. Um, yeah, I, and I don't know how the other providers are doing. Um, I'm really interested to see how the, the Chinese uh, platforms are going. Alibaba and Tencent both have a huge investments into serverless, but we don't really see, you know, the capability of those clouds outside of China is very limited. Um, they have um, they have regions outside of China, but uh, they don't have anywhere near the functionality of the regions within China. So it's not really ever been something I've had to use. Um, but definitely the... I'd say it's, yeah, Lambda, number one, Azure Functions, number two, um, Google Cloud Functions kind of trailing a bit at the back there, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. I guess the Alibaba has got the, the strength of the Chinese market or the size of it. Yeah. Uh, so at uh, Andy Jesse's keynote the other day, he showed that uh, Alibaba Cloud already has a bigger market of the you know, of the cloud market compared to uh, Google because of how big the Chinese market is, I guess. Yeah, yeah. The, the Chinese market is gigantic. Um, turning to the folks at Tencent, so Tencent um, helped run uh, serverless days in China, and they've just, uh, well, about six months ago, I think they announced a seventy billion dollar investment over the next coming years into Tencent Cloud. Um, you know, and that's more than Azure and Google combined. I think that's that's like AWS levels of investment, and their focus is just the Chinese market to try and catch up with Alibaba. Um, it's crazy. Um, I think the the Tencent folk. Well, actually, not not just Tencent. If you if you Google, I don't know if you've done this. Go to Google Trends and put the word serverless in, and then go to the worldwide view, and you'll see that the most searches for the word serverless come from China, by like a long way. Like you think, oh, you know, America's where most of the serverless stuff's happening. London's another biggish community, um, but like. China's just miles ahead and they've got their own, there's a lot of serverless specific frameworks that are coming out of China as well, which we don't see at all. Um, Alibaba have an interesting one, which in theory enables, uh, which abstracts away the cloud providers from the runtime perspective and it'll enable you to run a cloud function on any provider, but it's written by Alibaba and it's sitting, no one knows about it outside of China. You know, it's, it's really interesting. <laughs> That's uh, very close to the market, it seems. 
Um, so you mentioned the, the the strength of the Lambda platform being uh, not just the function itself, but also all the things around it, uh, but also in terms of the you know, specific use cases that Lambda now starting to support with all these all the different new features they're adding. Um, but you also talk about how now it's become this really complex thing, and uh, it's especially if you're like a front end developer, you are getting more into serverless. You want to sort of escape from these limitations of say uh, the framework that you're using. And then you go into the Lambda console, you see all these different configurations that you didn't have to see before. And you're like, oh my God, what else is going on here? Um, is there anything that the Lambda team could have done or could do in the future to make, make, make things simpler so that you don't have to have to uh, see all of these different configurations all the time and potentially based on your use case, uh, only some of the things that, uh, that, are, that are relevant to you are exposed to you? Yeah, I think it is possible, um, you know, where they provide you with an, a, a very um, basic set of defaults that are uh, that are based on the most likely use case. Um, you know, it's a so for example, like in web development in general, um, things like Webpack and Rollup and all these bundling and transpiling frameworks add a lot of complexity um, to web development build pipelines. And then what came out as a came out of that is a lot of folks then started to develop opinionated frameworks on top of them that had all these opinionated defaults um so folks actually don't need to learn webpack you don't need to learn rollup or whatever it is you know you use a framework that has those defaults baked in for you and i'm wondering if it's worthwhile the aws team doing something like that saying you know have a ask a question up front what are you using this for and if it's a data pipeline you know present a console where it's all optimized for that you don't really have to think too much about it all those and you've got a predefined whole configuration, not just about a you know a code template, but have a configuration default for you for your use case. Um, that could be super useful, and then then potentially, you know, um, maybe even hide a lot of the the options as well. You know, have an advanced tab, you know, where you go to and it's like um, where if you're brave, you know what you're doing. You go to that advanced tab if you understand all of that. Um, there was a I don't know if you saw it last week. There was a um, article trending on Hacker News about this company who are using Google Cloud Run, um, a startup that was using Google Cloud Run, and they didn't really understand how it worked. Um, and I think they had some sort of recursive workflow or something like that in there, and they ran they ran up a seventy two thousand dollar bill in a day um, because of. Um, a slight misconfiguration and not fully understanding how the platform worked. So they had the $72,000 workload. I think Google ended up writing it off. Um, but they publicly admitted in this blog post that it's part of the problem is they didn't understand how the platform worked. Um, and I think, yeah, having opinionated defaults will help a lot of that. And also understanding that early users to these platforms don't necessarily understand how they work. So, you know, um, yeah, so don't give people a, a, a loaded gun to shoot themselves on the foot with. Um, would probably be a really good good way to go. Is try and you know have advanced lots of questions before if you want to unlock it or something like that might help as well. Yeah, I like the idea of having different personas and then have different uh, consoles that are dedicated to those personas, so that uh, you don't. You, I mean, even for me, when I'm trying to go into a Lambda function now, there's just a bunch of things I just I just don't care. Uh, that doesn't re doesn't really apply to my workload, but they're there. I have to scroll past them all the time to find what I need. So having a more dedicated uh, 
persona profiles that you know, hides a lot of these uh, op options uh, from me. That would be just useful in terms of navigation as well. Um, and uh, I guess the circular uh, infinite recursion, that's also hit quite a few people on Lambda in the past, but I guess that they did never hit uh, quite as big a bill as 72,000 that I've heard. I think yeah. the biggest one I heard was a couple hundred bucks maybe because the Lambda is just so cheap. Uh, and I guess now now you've got a 10 gig functions, maybe it gets more expensive. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There was. Uh, I'll see if I can find the article. But yeah, if you, it was. Uh, I, I think it was some sort of recursion. They built a web scraper essentially. I think, and they're trying to. I think they ended up basically trying to scrape the whole internet. <laughs> I mean, it went a bit too far, too fast. Um, you know, on one hand, you know, having a highly scalable platform is great. On the other hand, you can get yourself into trouble with it. So you know, it's, you use these things responsibly and carefully, and understand how they work. You know. Or your provider, you know, provides those guardrails. So I understand that, hey, you can't expect everyone who, who touches this thing to understand it completely, you know. So, Do they have uh, something similar to Lambda in terms of the uh, regional concurrency limit, which is there as part of, in part as a guardrail, but also things like uh, billing alerts so that, uh, you know, if you suddenly see a really big jump in your AWS bill, you get an alert before something really bad happens. Yeah, so obviously billing alerts are my favorite form of monitoring um, within AWS. But um, within Google Cloud, they do have billing alerts, and they actually have billing limits, so they can stop services. The problem is, um, as with any cloud provider, AWS has a similar issue. Um, if the, the billing systems are behind live systems, so in Google Cloud, they're about 24 hours behind. Uh, I think in AWS, they're about 12 hours behind, uh, more or less. Um, and basically, it was, um, yeah, these folk, it, it shut off, the billing alerts kicked in, but it was a bit too late. Um, the other fun things they did is um, uh, they were using Firebase as their database. Um, so the, the, the 72,000 wasn't just cloud run fees, it was overall fees. And they were using Firebase as their database, um, and they had... Um, Obviously, Firebase, as much as a different interface, it's the same billing account behind the two, but they put themselves in the, the free Firebase tier. And for some reason, Firebase um, auto-upgraded them because they had billing details. So Firebase's failure mode, you know, if you hit your limits, was not to stop the workloads happening, was to keep the workloads going, but charging more. Um, I think a lot of their costs end up being Firebase as much as it was um, Cloud Run. So it's not just, so I think that was kind of the problem, but it's because it had this 24-hour um, cycle, you know, to resolve, to actually calculate what the bills were that the billing alerts couldn't kick in. Um, you know, and that's, I said, all, all platforms, they, they don't know your bill live. That's one of the problems. You know, there'll always be a delay between you, you using something and uh, the billing system knowing about it. Right, so these guys said uh, they rack up seventy two thousand in one day, or or did they yeah, maybe yeah. not have the? Oh, okay, wow, yeah, that's yeah. that's pretty wild. And the overall bill, so Firebase plus Cloud Run plus everything. Right, right, gotcha. Um, yeah. You also talked about the uh, Webpack and the Rollup. I've been hearing a lot about the Yes build recently. Apparently, it's yeah. uh, much more efficient and much faster. Have you used it? No, I haven't. I'm actually going to start using it for a new project uh, where I've been using Rollup. I want to swap out. So I've used, I use Rollup extensively um, all the time. Every single function I, I ship with it, doesn't matter the platform, I always bundle it using Rollup because you can get fantastic tree shaking. Um, one of the things with ES Build um, is that it's essentially it's similar to Rollup um, and Webpack in that the, it's a bundler and can do all the tree shaking, but it's written in Golang. 
So it's a lot faster. So Rollup, for example, and Webpack don't really do multi-threading that well because of JavaScript, um, whereas ESBuild can. And obviously Golang is significantly more performant than um, uh, than any kind of uh, than JavaScript. So yeah, ESBuild looks like a great tool. Um, a very common thing when you are building uh, front-end work or even using bundlers on your back-end is that... Um, you know, you're going to be constantly bundling. You want to be testing your bundled output, um, not just the unbundled stuff, because just in case errors get introduced in bundling, it's, it's unlikely, but you want to test what you're shipping rather than that. So if you're going to be running it in a um, – uh, if you're going to be um, doing multiple iterations, just potentially running a kind of a watch function where it's constantly bundling, um, roll up and webpack it really slow. You know, um, if you've got a lot – of functions, a lot of code to bundle, whereas ESBuild is significantly faster. It, it makes that fast feedback loop a lot quicker and improves performance. Uh, your deployment performance a hell of a lot um, because bundling can get really slow. There's a lot of calculations that have to happen, uh, you know, because it figures out what your whole dependency tree is and then does tree shaking and only imports the pieces of code that you need. Um, so yeah, ESBuild is definitely on my my uh, to do list. This. Um, this coming month or so to try and replace Rollup. Yeah, I've heard the. Uh, I think AWS is starting to use uh, ES Build recently as well. Uh, so it's certainly getting some uh, pretty good attraction there. Yeah, I, I definitely think I've been looking, I've been using the AWS version 3, the AWS SDK version 3 for JavaScript a lot, and they've changed the way all the bundles work. You know, it used to be this like monolithic thing that got brought in, um, and there were lots of like, codependencies between. Um, different functions so it was became harder to just import a single sdk whereas with version three you know there's essentially a, a whole family of sdks sdk per service uh, so you can bring in just the s3 sdk just the dymo db sdk individually but more importantly it's written in such a way that it bundles really really well so i've got a function that runs graphql js um the s3 sdk the um, DynamoDB SDK and the SNS SDK. So I've got all of those SDKs in there. Um, oh, and um, Parameter Store. And um, and it bundles to about 700 kilobytes with 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 the um, with all your SDKs in there. So that's like a huge saving, you know. Where's what the version two SDK is? What 50 megs? If I remember correctly. If it comes in something like that, it's huge. Uh, whereas version three, you just bring what you need and it bundles fantastically, you know, so you have far smaller functions. Okay, great. Yeah, I need to check it out as well. I think uh, you told me that uh, there were still some missing features uh, from the V3 SDK for DynamDB. Has that been changed now? Yeah, they have. So when they first, the first, uh, it was all in preview, um, they didn't have the ability, there's no document client. And I don't know if they're going to bring it back. So obviously, if most people end up using the the document client because you know, DynamoDB, DynamoDB has got its own JSON schema for its type system, and no one wants to deal with that. Um, so what the document client did is it it would what they call marshalling or unmarshal. Essentially, it would, it would transform JSON, standard JSON into the document um, DB's uh, attribute value schema um, that DynamoDB uses. Um, and they didn't have that early on, uh, but they have released one now. Uh, so there's, uh, I think they, are, they might bring the document client back, but what they have released is a marshal and unmarshal 
methods of the document the, uh, the DynamoDB client. So um, when you do a, a DynamoDB operation, you just call, you know, if it's a, if it's a put or whatever it is, you just call the Marshall function to transform it. And if you need to, and then if you need to um, transform that data that it gets back, you call the unmarshal function. So that is, I think, became available in, I want to say September. I think it might, might have been October, but yeah, that's been available now. So it's a lot more usable. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's a, that'll be a big miss if they don't have that. Uh, um, so I guess the one final thing I want to ask you about, uh, since we are still in the final week of uh, reInvent, is uh, I mean, where where do you see this uh, serverless thing going? Um, I mean, containers are getting more serverless-like features, and the Lambda is getting more container-like features. I mean, nowadays you can run container images inside a Lambda function. So where do you see you know the evolution taking us uh, next? So uh, genuinely, I think. Um... <sighs> I think there's going to be more and more of a convergence. Like, I remember a conversation I had with Tim Wagner in early 2016, uh, kind of off the cuff, and he was saying at the time, you know, his Lambda group were, you know, there are a lot of users pushing for lo- longer-running Lambda functions, container support, etc. And he said in the container group, you know, there was there was a push for folks to have like more serverless type type features. Um, you know, and I think we will see more and more of a convergence, and at some point, it might be hard to tell the difference. I think uh, at some point the container team are going to release something that looks a lot like functions and the functions team are the Lambda team are going to end up releasing something that's more stateful. Um, but I think the whole serverless paradigm of paper use, um, you know, scale to zero, uh, that's here to stay. And I just think the use cases and the platforms that, that, that support that paradigm is just going to keep increasing because that's that's what people want. You know, they don't want to pay for stuff that doesn't that they're not using. Uh, they want stuff that can scale automatically on its own. You know, um, whether that's event driven, uh, whether that's stateless or stateful. You know, that's going to stay. Um, and what will happen? Um, you know, it might look have a container interface. It might have a zip interface. Um, that's definitely going to expand. And I I wouldn't be surprised if you know um, you know there's Fargate functions or something like that comes out at some point or stateful lambda comes out at some point um it's but i do think serverless is is got to the point where it's just a thing you know it's just it's just an option everyone uses it's it's becoming less significantly less controversial shall we say i don't think um people don't get fired for using lambda you know they don't get a lot of questions for using it now there's a lot more trust in the platforms so i think use is just going to keep expanding yeah, I can't remember the same thing happening with uh, NoSQL, and uh, you know, it became eventually became something that you just use rather than talk, keep talking about how this is a NoSQL versus a SQL. Even though that conversation is still happening nowadays, <laughs> but um, certainly that uh, you know it's, it's no longer like I said a controversial decision. Um, okay, so I guess that's all the questions I've got. Uh, is there anything else that you want to sort of mention before we go? Um, yeah, I think, uh, obviously we had a great conversation about reInvent, um, on Friday, um, about, you know, what you, your, I, I got your thoughts. You were on the other side of this. I got your thoughts on, on reInvent and kind of the products that came out and, uh, what you thought the direction is. I think folks should definitely watch that. Um, that was a great chat. Um, I'm going to have another conversation with Vlad, um, Ionescu, um, around uh, his thoughts on the container releases. That should be quite interesting. Um, Vlad's a character and he's got lots of strong opinions and things, so it's always entertaining to watch. 
Um, yeah, um, but yeah, check out Homeschool. Um, it's a forever evolving platform. So homeschool.dev, lots of serverless and container content on there. Um, yeah, we're going to be running more and more, more workshops and more kind of online courses on there um, aimed at folks who want to use use the latest and great, greatest platforms and modern uh, uh, functions and container platforms. Sure, I would make sure that those are included in the show notes, uh, including your session with uh, Vlad. Um, one thing we actually didn't talk about and you didn't mention is uh, Interrupt. Uh, what's that about? Yes, yes. So, so Interrupt is a new publication we've, we've started at Homeschool, um, and that's really focusing on um, focusing content for the modern developer. You know, we look at um, – so there will be a lot of cloud-native and serverless content, but also focusing on things like shifting security left, uh, the whole shift left paradigm and observability as well. Um, and that's really not going to be huge amounts of deeply technical content. It's more focused on the higher level trends and, uh, you know, views and where we're going. So there's a relatively good post on there at the moment around um, cloud native and kind of containers and serverless. It's a pretty strong adoption pattern we're seeing where folks are moving to to um, who are migrating to the cloud, they're just skipping EC2 and they're putting all their existing workloads on things like Fargate and they're building all their new apps on things like Lambda. Um, and so there's a post on like why that pattern exists. Um, other posts on AppSync, how for me like AppSync was uh, one of the best announcements AWS has ever made, um, but they just didn't harp it up enough. Like uh, I feel that the AppSync team has been massively undersold. So there's a good post about the, the launch of AppSync and the impact from that there. But yeah, there's probably, you start to see a few few posts a week um, focusing kind of modern platforms and modern developer um, processes and tooling and these kind of things. Um, yeah, so if you want to keep up to speed, Interrupt's a good place to go, you know. Okay, great. And I'll make sure that I'll include your Twitter handle and the LinkedIn profile on the show notes as well. Uh, if for anyone who's listening who want to get in touch with Ant, uh, um, do you have any sort of preference for things that people should get in touch with? Uh, maybe job offers for consulting gigs or maybe random questions about your dogs? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Twitter is always, always the best place for me. Um, I am horrendous at um, <laughs> other platforms. I'm looking, I've got like 2,500 emails unanswered. So yeah, Twitter is definitely... Ping me on Twitter. My DMs are open, so just ping me on Twitter or, you know, just at me, and that's easily the best way to get hold of me. Okay, great. Sounds good. In that case, I will make sure those are on the show notes, and uh, thanks again for taking the time to talk to me today. Ah, great. It's always always good to talk to you. Take it easy, man. Hopefully see you in person soon. Cheers, Jan. Okay, bye-bye. So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes, please go to realworldserverless.com. If you want to learn how to build production-ready serverless applications, please check out my upcoming courses at productionreadyserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.